Again, glad you guys are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 2. So uh, as Jeremy mentions, Advent, it's the four weeks leading up to Christmas when we prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. Uh, things that we're focusing on here at Stonebridge, we're looking at some names and titles associated with Jesus at his birth. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at that first name, an angel appeared to Mary and said, name him Jesus. And then an angel appeared to Joseph and said, name him Jesus, and then told us why, because he will save his people from their sins. And so we tried to expand that definition to see what it meant. Jesus is a, a Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. And to be saved from our sins, to be saved is to be rescued and we said from our sins, that's living disobediently to God. And the ultimate danger in that is that we're separated from God. And so Jesus saves us from being separated from God. And this is the other side of the coin. He also establishes us as sons and daughters of God so we can live in freedom. And that's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Today we're going to look at Jesus as king. This one who was, according to Matthew, born the king of the Jews. So this is Matthew chapter 2, a story that's probably familiar uh, to you, but just in case, we'll do a little refresher. Uh, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked him where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that, that they had seen when it, excuse me, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So again, for many of you, that's a, that's a familiar story, but just to get us all on the same page, what exactly was happening? So who are the Magi? We, we don't know exactly who these guys were. Um, Kind of the, the tradition is there were three guys and they rode camels and they came to see Jesus. There, there, were, there were more than one, for sure, Magi is plural. There was two or more. The tradition with three comes from the fact that they, there were three gifts mentioned, gold, frankincense, and, and myrrh. There may have been three. There may have been ten. They, they didn't ride camels. They probably were on horses, maybe mules. They come a thousand miles, really long distance uh, from Persia, and they were this cross between astronomers and astrologers. So the astronomer part of them looked at the sky and observed the movements of the stars. For them, everything was a star, whether we may say, well, that's a planet, that everything was a star at that point. So observing the movement of the stars, that's astronomy. And then astrology was they would interpret those movements of the stars to help the king uh, know how to run the government. So they would have been high up in the government, um, nobility. Most likely they traveled with an entourage. And so we have these three, four, five, however many guys, again, astronomer, astrologers, nobility, traveling to Jerusalem over a thousand miles because they see something in the sky. We don't know what that was. It could have been something supernatural. 
just a light that God put in the sky. We, we have a baby born to a virgin, so not a big deal to put a light in the sky for God. And that directed these men from Persia. It could have been a supernova. That's a star that collapses and gets super bright for a couple of months. So it would have appeared as a new star because it was something they wouldn't have been able to see before. Remember, no telescopes at this point. There's also some theories about the way planets come together. And all of these planets have significance in Persian and Jewish astrology. And, and, and there were several happenings, convergences around the time of Jesus' birth that could have had significance. And when these planets come together, they, they, they get really bright and they look like stars. Jupiter and Saturn came together around, I think it was 7 B.C. And then that picture in the bottom right, Jupiter and Venus, that's actually from 2015. You can see that's a picture from NASA but that happened also in 3 B.C. So both of those things right around the time of Jesus. We don't know. But they saw something compelling. They saw something in the sky that they interpreted to mean there's been a king born in Jerusalem. And so that's where they go. Again, a thousand miles away. Very difficult and dangerous journey. They get to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem where Jesus is. Um, sometime um, after He's been born. They're not there on the, the night. Maybe Jesus is six months old. Maybe he's 18 months old. He's, he's less than two. We don't know how old he was, but they go to Herod. Herod is the, the current king of the Jews, not because the Jews want him to be a king, but because uh, Caesar has said, you're the king of the Jews. And they say, hey, we're looking for this king who's been born. Herod's paranoid, so he starts trying to maneuver to figure out who this king is. But these magi are led to Jesus, again, some point between zero and two years old at this point, and they respond to him as a king. They bow down, they worship him, they give him gifts fit for a king, gold, frankincense, or myrrh. So we have a sense of who the Magi are. We have no idea what they saw in the sky, but we know what they went to see in Judea, and that was a king, and they responded appropriately to him. So that, that's a story that you all know and, and maybe love. For us, peeps I want to grab onto is just in verse 6. It's a quote from Micah that uh, we heard this morning, that, that Maggie Beth read this morning, this idea of being a, having a ruler who will shepherd the people, a ruler or a king who will shepherd. That was a very common Old Testament concept. It goes all the way back to Genesis where Jacob says, God has shepherded me my whole life. In Genesis 49, uh, Jacob calls God a shepherd. Psalm 23, famously, the Lord, or, or Yahweh, the personal name of God, is my shepherd. Uh, human rulers were called shepherds. In Psalm 78, J David, who's the ideal king, uh, is, is said to have been brought from a sheep pen and then placed over Israel to shepherd the people. Ezekiel 34, the Messiah is described as a shepherd, predicted, prophesied that God would send another. It says... Um, chose David, his servant. This is written hundreds of years after David has died. They're not talking about uh, David uh, literally. They're talking about one of his descendants. The Messiah was said to be a son of David, and he will shepherd his people. So there's this, again, thread that runs throughout the Old Testament that says a shepherd is a king, or a king is a shepherd. If your ruler is good, then he's a good shepherd. If he's bad, he's a bad shepherd. And so there's the, those two concepts um, run hand in hand throughout the Old Testament. God, human rulers, and then speaking of the Messiah. Shepherd king, king shepherd, rulers who will shepherd their people. And Jesus grabs onto that concept and he appropriates it for himself. He says, that's me. In John chapter 10, he says this about himself. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when this hired hand sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. He's talking there about Gentiles. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So Jesus takes this image that would have been very um, well-known to that audience, this idea of the Messiah as a shepherd, and he says, I'm that guy. Not I'm a good shepherd, but I'm the good shepherd. And that's how the people who heard him understood it. They say, this guy's crazy. He's demon-possessed. How can he make these claims about himself? Then there are other people who are saying, well, he just opened the eyes of a man who was blind. That's John chapter 9. A man who was born blind, Jesus heals him, something that's unheard of. And they're saying that that kind of thing doesn't happen. Crazy, demon-possessed people don't do that. So there's division over Jesus' identity. But what he says about himself, here's how you'll know. Five times in those couple of paragraphs, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. That's how you'll know that I'm the good shepherd because I'm the one who's going to die for my sheep. And he wants to make sure that everybody knows he does it willingly. He says, no one takes my life from me. I choose. I have the authority and I choose to lay my life down. This is some this is a decision that I'm making out of love for you. That's how you're going to know that I'm the good shepherd, because I will voluntarily die for you. For us, that's cliche, profound statement to think of a king dying for his subjects, a shepherd dying for his sheep. Paul grabs onto this in Romans chapter five. You'll see it here up on the screen. This this wonderful concept. You see it just the right time when we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. But for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. So Paul's saying, we were ungodly and Jesus died for us. Maybe somebody will die for a good person. Maybe. Occasionally. But who dies for wicked people? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son... How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So what Paul is saying is this idea of a king who dies for his subjects or a shepherd who dies for his sheep, it goes beyond that. God dies for his enemies. Like Who who does that? Who dies for wicked people? Who willingly gives up their life for people who are selfish or disobedient or rebellious? For someone who is an enemy of yours, would, would you do that? Who does that? Profound. Jesus says, that's how you're going to know I'm the good shepherd. Not just because I can open the eyes of a man born blind, but because I'm going to die for you, even while you're killing me. It's a a choice that I'm making because I love you and I desire a relationship with you. You know that most likely. Jesus is a king. I see kings and I don't know any shepherds. I don't know what it's like to live under a king and I've never met a shepherd in my life. And so those ideas for me don't necessarily 
penetrate my heart. They don't help me know God on a deeper level at all. Maybe you have lived under a king in some other country, or maybe uh, you know a shepherd or two, but I, I don't. So I've been trying to think about what is it, what, where's the truth there for us? Is there anything that we can grab onto that will help us know God better and know better how he desires for us to relate to him? Famous, maybe uh, second most famous passage in scripture behind John 3.16, Psalm 23, written by David, who was a shepherd, literally of sheep and a shepherd of Israel. But he writes Psalm 23 from the perspective, not of a shepherd, but from the perspective of a sheep. Uh, it's a, a psalm that may, maybe you know. It's said at every funeral you'll probably ever go to. We're going to look at that first statement. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I have no needs. Or the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I don't want. We want to look at that sentence. We don't have time to dig into the whole thing. If you want to dig deeper, classic book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It was written in 1971, but it's, still, it's an easy read. It's not... Dense. It's more devotional and inspirational than academic. A great book if you have a hard time connecting personally with God. If the personal or relational, emotional piece of uh, with the Lord, if that's just a, a block for you, a great book. This guy was a shepherd. Philip Keller wrote it. He was a shepherd. He was a scientist. He was an agronomist, and he he was active in his church, but he wasn't a pastor. So you don't get all that kind of churchy language in there. It's a really good perspective. It's uh, Again, it's an older book, $6 on Amazon. Buy it and put it in your stocking. So worth, worth your time, for sure, especially if you struggle on that personal connection with the Lord. He looks at the parallels between people and sheep, and it's pretty fascinating to dig into that, uh, to that Psalm 23. Again, we, we don't have time to do all that this morning. We're going to take just that first sentence. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I lack nothing. It's a strong statement to make, when I first heard that, I thought, is David saying that from a place of um, kind of youthful idealism? In Psalm 34, he actually says something very similar very early in his life. This is uh, the, the context is 1 Samuel 21. We talked about this back in the summer. You don't remember. He's, leave, he, he's running away from Saul the very beginning when he just started running from Saul. And he goes to Gath, which, uh, which is a Philistine town, because he thinks I'll be in a foreign country. So I'll be safe. Saul can't get to me here. And he thinks he's going to be anonymous. But he gets there and people know him. It's the town where Goliath is from. He's killed Goliath. His reputation has preceded him. And people see him and say, that's David, the one about whom they sing. David has slain his tens of thousands. And so David gets nervous. I mean, these are walled cities. You can't just walk in and walk out. And so he's in this walled city thinking he's going to be anonymous and then realizing very quickly he's not. That he's infamous. And so he begins to get scared for his life. And so his idea is to act like a crazy person. He acts like a madman in front of the king, hoping the king will expel him, will kick him out of the city. And so he's brought before the king. He acts like a madman. And the, and the king says, I, I have enough crazy people. I don't need any more. Get him out. And in the midst of that, David writes Psalm 34. It's a great psalm. And he that the, the heart of it, the meat right there in verses 8 through 10, you see a very similar thing that you do in Psalm 23. You trust in the Lord, you fear the Lord, you're not going to lack anything. And David wrote that as a teenager. Maybe at that point he's 18, 19, 20 years old. He suffered some, but he's still young. He hadn't experienced a ton 
um, of adversity at that point in his life. But Psalm 23 actually was written very much towards the end of David's life. And at the end of his life, looking back, he can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I have no needs. Now, this is a guy who spent 10 years without a house, 10 years homeless, 10 years without a stable supply of food, 10 years estranged from his family, 10 years even cut off from God in some ways because he couldn't worship publicly. Uh, He buried at least two of his sons. One of his sons rebelled against him to, to such an extent that David had to leave Jerusalem because he thought his son was going to kill him. I mean, this, this, he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. That, what, that's not something that he's looking, saying, yeah, I bet God could get me through that. He's looking back and saying, God got me through that. God walked with me through that. Someone who's lived life, who's experienced deep pain, some his own choices, some as a result of the choices of others, but he's experienced deep pain, adversity, difficulty, long periods of suffering and lack. He says... The Lord is my shepherd. I don't, I don't lack anything. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't want for anything. It's a strong statement to make. Again, looking back over the life, uh, a difficult life. Reminds me of Paul in Philippians 4. He says, God will meet all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And Paul says that from jail. He writes that from jail. He writes that as someone who says, listen, I've known hunger and I've known thirst and I've known sleeplessness, and I've known imprisonments, and I've known beatings, and I've known shipwrecks. I've known danger in every place I've been. I've known distress. I've known tribulation. I've known hard work. I've known hardship. All of that, Paul says, and God meets all that. When Paul becomes a Christian, God sends a prophet, Ananias, to him. And he says, I want you to tell him how much he's going to suffer. He needs to know. That he's suffering not because I'm upset with him, but because I've called him to this. Paul had been an enemy of Christianity. It would have been easy for him to think God is punishing me. The reason things are so difficult for me is because God is upset with the fact that I persecuted the church for however many years of my life. And so before any of that starts, God sends a prophet to him to say to him, it's going to be difficult. You're going to suffer and you're going to suffer a lot in obedience to Jesus. And you need to know that's not because God's upset with you. That's just part of his calling on your life. That's the guy who says God meets all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. It's an interesting statement. It's a perspective to me to be able to say as someone who has suffered greatly from prison, to say as someone who looks back over their life and you have this lost decade of tribulation and trial and hardship and homelessness and insecurity, to be able to look back and say, the Lord's my shepherd. I don't want for anything. Where does that, what is that rooted in? How do we develop that same sense of confidence and faith? When Jesus is talking about the kingdom, he says it's the pearl of great price. Whatever you've got to sell to get it, sell to get it. It's worth it. I'm worth it. There's a sense, I think, in which in order to develop, in order to be able to say with Paul and with David, you can say it on vacation. Anybody can. But to be able to say in difficult times, in dark seasons of your life, to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't lack anything. There's a comprehension. It's not intellectual. It's it's more heart. I don't want to say it's emotional, 
It's a deeply personal understanding and comprehension that says Jesus is sufficient. There's a book written several years ago, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The book wasn't very good, but the title was really good. Really good. He drilled it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. There's a recognition uh, of the sufficiency of Christ. If I have Jesus, then I don't need anything else. David can say, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I don't lack anything. Not just because he's experienced God meeting his physical, tangible, temporal needs, although those things are true. But also that even when those things aren't true, he says, well, I have God, so what else do I need? Paul can say the same thing. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But even in the times where I'm weak, I have him, so I I don't need anything else. There's a deeper understanding that says God is a good father and he gives good gifts to his children. And we ask for those and are thankful to receive those into our lives. And even when they don't come, we say, I don't want for anything because I have him and he's everything for me. In Daniel 3, there's a story you may know at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three friends of Daniel. And they were all, all these guys at this point, maybe they're late teens, maybe they're early 20s. We don't know exactly and they're, they're advisors to the king. They're kind of in this class, their understanding and their wisdom and their knowledge. And uh, the, the king has a huge ego, and he builds a statue and says, every time you hear worship music, you got to worship this statue. And these three guys won't do it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They won't worship the statue. And there's some other guys in their class who don't like them because they're Jews. And so they tell on them to the king and say, these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not worshiping and it makes nebuchadnezzar the king really mad and so he brings them before him and he plays the music and says i'm going to play this music and y'all are going to bow down and worship or you're going into that fireplace and they say king in chapter 3 verse 17 king we're not going to do it our god can deliver us from that furnace but even if he does not we're not bowing down and worshiping There's this sense, god is good and god is great and he can save me and even if he doesn't we're not changing our mind. We're not throwing our faith away. We're not, recant- we're not recanting. We are sticking with him. Paul can say, God meets all of my needs, and even if my physical needs are not met, I have everything I need in Jesus. David can say, the Lord is my shepherd, and he leads me by green pastures. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by quiet waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But even in times when I don't experience that, I've got everything I need because I've got him. Deep sense of understanding what it means to be led by the Lord. Do you in your own heart, could you this morning say, the Lord is my shepherd. So I don't lack for anything. The Lord is my shepherd. I've got everything that I need. Easy to say that when you get a bonus check. Easy to say that when everything in your house is clicking. Easy to say that when the road is level before you. I hope you can say it during those times. Can you say it when things are difficult? A decade of homelessness, thrown in jail, hungry, sleepless, enemies everywhere. In those moments, if that's where you are this morning, can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? And so I've got everything that I need. When you're tempted, 
when you're tempted to look somewhere else for direction, for guidance, for support? Can you say, God will deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I'm not running after those things. I'm not going to do it. I'm reading this book called The Martyr's Oath. It's good, not great, but one of the things that's just, if you want to read, I just, I'm telling you. So, I don't want you to think that I, anyway, I'm just, I'm honest. Everything can't be great. So this book, again, it's, it's good, not great, but part of it that is compelling is this journalist has gone around, he's interviewed these guys who are part of the persecuted church, and it's brutal to read the things that these guys are experiencing because of their faith in Jesus, the amount of the, the torture, the imprisonment, their children being killed in front of them, and they don't, they don't quit. They stand firm. Jesus died for me. I'll die for him. That's kind of their mantra. These are young people, 20s, teens. One of these guys gets thrown in jail when he's 14, tortured, and he doesn't recant. He sticks to the Lord, even when many of the people in his fellowship choose to to, um, sign a paper that says they're no longer following that. I'm like, we don't live anywhere near there, nothing near there. It's like a big deal if we say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. We don't have anything like that where we live. But what does it look like to develop roots that are deep enough that if we were ever squeezed, we would stand firm? Jesus and Paul both say the ones who stand firm to the end, those are the ones who will be saved. And so what does it look like for us to develop those deep roots that even if things become difficult, we would say Jesus died for us. He's the pearl of great price. Whatever it costs, I'm in. Even he, he can deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going anywhere. Throw me in the fire. I don't care. The worst thing that happens is I die and I get to be with him anyway. I'm not letting go. What does it look like for us to develop those roots? It's nothing. I don't think you can go at it directly. I don't think it's, it's not easy. One step, two step, three step. There's a sense in which being with him is the, the response of the wise men. Worship, it brings us into the presence of God and we begin to realize he's enough. And he's sufficient. His goodness and his love and his mercy and his holiness. All of that, they're worth it. And then I think very practically what that looks like with eight days before Christmas where I would push you, yes, create space to worship in the next week. I would say very specifically, begin to ask the Lord, order the loves of my heart. Order the loves of my heart. We all have multiple loves. And that's as it should be. So God, order them. If you're a Christian, Jesus is number one. You know that. We all know that in our head. We can all go down the priority list. Are those things rightly ordered when it comes to how we actually live our life? Think about your time. Your most precious resource is your time for most of you. Even more precious than money for most of you is your time. Does your time reflect the proper ordering of the loves in your heart? I'm not talking about the amount of time. I'm talking about... um, the best time. Does he get it? Are you creating space for him? As you begin to do that regularly, it's, it's not a quick process. Deep roots don't grow fast. It's not, a, it's not overnight. This is days and weeks and months and years of rightly ordering the loves of your life, of prioritizing him with your best time. What begins to happen is he captivates your heart. You'll be able to say like David, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Can you, I, I can't fathom saying that. 
one day with you is better than three years somewhere else. It's not hyperbole for David. He believes that. He's the one who says, looking back over a life of difficulty, God's my shepherd. I got no complaints about the way he's taken care of me through my life. God's captured his heart. He could say, as a deer longs for water, so my soul longs for you. Again, that's not quick. But as you write, as you prioritize, as you begin to say, God, help me rightly order the loves of my life. And it's one thing to say it here on a Sunday. It's difficult when Tuesday happens to maintain that. We live in an affluent society. Nobody's ever going to I was talking, Jeremy mentioned he just got back from Cameroon. He said he talked to a pastor in Cameroon. He said, people are, 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 are not coming to our church. And Jeremy says, why? And he's like, well, they're getting captured and they're getting their hands cut off on the way. And so they're not coming. Yeah, I, w- I would think that would be a deterrent. But in his mind, he's like, why would they not come? Jesus died for us. He's worth your hands. That's never going to be you. You have to fight for a parking place. That's it. It's going to be hot in here. That's not going to be where we live. We live in an affluent society, though, and we do have a lot of weeds. We have a lot of weeds that choke out the work of God in our life. That keep those roots from going deeper, if I can change the metaphor, in our own heart. Because there's so many things fighting for our attention and our affection. And so you're going to have to be super disciplined, super intentional in your own life to say, God, rightly order my loves today and give me grace give me the grace to prioritize first you capture my heart so that i can say if i have you then i have everything that i need i'm going to ask you for these other things and you're a good father and you long to give them to me and thank you for them and even if you don't i'm not going anywhere because you're the pearl of great price let's pray Kaylee and Megan are going to sing, and as they sing this first song, I want you to listen to the Lord. If you're someone who's following Jesus, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, my sheep know my voice. So you can hear him this morning. I want to encourage you, if you're willing, to start from this spot. God, my desire is like David to be able to say, you're my shepherd. Therefore, I don't lack anything. If you're willing, say that in your own heart. Father, I thank you that you're a good father and that you desire to give good gifts to your children. I thank you that I can look to you for provision. I thank you that I can look to you for relationship. I can look to you for guidance, for wisdom, for power, for direction, for all of those good gifts that you give. And I'm thankful for those good gifts. And at the same time, God, I want to cultivate a heart that says, if I have Jesus, then I have everything. God, I want to cultivate a heart that like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, as 19 and 20 and 21-year-old guys can say, God can deliver me from that, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going anywhere. God, would you so capture and captivate me with your goodness and your love and your holiness and your beauty and your righteousness, that I would say, you're enough. You're enough. I have you. 
And that's all that I need. God, would you very practically begin to show me what it looks like to rightly order the loves of my life? Most of you don't love anything that's bad. It's good things, all competing for limited resources, particularly your time and your attention and your affection. God, would you show me how to rightly order my loves? Would you remind me and convict me when the weeds of this affluent society begin to choke out the good work that you want to do in me? Would you speak to me now? So God's voice is never condemning. It's not harsh. It can be strong. It's not harsh. It's not an edge. So I want to encourage you as Kaylee and Megan's like for me to rightly order my loves. If if you're not there yet, you may want to start and say, God, I want to believe that you're sufficient, but honestly, I'm not buying it. I pray that you would begin to capture my heart so that I could begin to recognize your sufficiency. I would see you are indeed the pearl of great price. I'm not ready yet. Reveal yourself to me in a way I could understand. You may not be at that point yet. You may want to say, God, I like the way I'm managing my life right now. The idea of coming under your Lordship, the idea of you shepherding me, I'm not, I'm not too interested. But if you can do a better job than I can do, would you begin to speak to me about that? And he will. Wherever you are with God as your shepherd, Jesus as your shepherd this morning, take a couple of minutes. Ask him to speak and be willing to respond. After this song, Kim's going to come and set up ministry time and we'll, we'll pray with you about maybe something God's stirring in your heart but again for this for this for these couple of moments you take some time with the Lord good morning um, as David was sharing um, the Lord brought a picture to mind that he'd shared years and years ago during a sermon and it's of two glasses like drinking glasses um, which represents our hearts our lives and one of the glasses is full of water um, it's overflowing in all the things Um, that God gives us relationships, jobs, friends and family, money, finances, food, shelter, all those things were on the outside of the glass. Um, And then there's another glass and it's empty. Finances, the relationships, food, all those things were filling the glass. Um, So if those things were taken away, the glass became empty. But with the glass that's full of water, those things were on the outside of the glass. Um, So when they were taken away, the glass is still full. And it's a picture of what Jesus does in our lives. When we receive him, the Holy Spirit comes and fills our lives. And um, even if all those things are taken away, we still have him and um, we're still overflowing with his love. And um, and in my life, I've had a lot of unfulfilled desires. Um, but as I take my loneliness or my um, sadness, my um, any needs that I have, um, desires to the Lord. He has met them every time and filled them and satisfied and given me a full and a rich life um, in him. And so um, if you don't know that fullness of Jesus today, we encourage you to come forward to receive prayer. He is a good father and he wants to give us those things, but he wants to be those things first. He wants to be our, um, our best friend. He wants to be the living
living waters that, that fills us and satisfies those desires so that we can live out of that overflow and not live out of this need that we're trying to fill, constantly trying to fill that place, but that we're living out of a place of overflow um, as he's. Um, all those things in our lives. So um, we're going to have ministry teams in a minute. We encourage you guys to stand and worship during this last song. And if you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you. So let me pray and we'll go into ministry time. Jesus, we thank you that you are, your love is better than life, that you love us with an unfailing love. God, that your love never fails, never changes. It never leaves us or forsakes us. And we thank you that even now you're preparing a place for us, that when it's ready, you're coming to get us so that we could be with you forever. Thank you for making the way for that, Jesus. And thank you that here on earth, as it is in heaven, you want to fill us now um, with your presence, that you've given us your spirit to fill us. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and fill our hearts, to fill our lives. that those things that we've been trying to fill it with, that Jesus, we say we love you and your love is better than life. Let us taste and see today of, of your goodness, of your overflowing presence and love that, that satisfies us completely. Thank you that you are the living waters, that we never thirst again, and you're the bread of life, that we never hunger again with you. So we love you, Jesus. Thank you for the life that you've given us in you. In Jesus' name, amen.